Good morning. <clears throat> that last song, the last verse of that song said, He's coming soon. Thank God for sure. I hope you don't fall into that crowd where those that say, Where is the promise of His appearing? For the sense the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the foundation of the world. He's still coming back. And I'll tell you what, that's the, reason why, that's the reason why the Bible calls it a blessed hope. Because there's no other hope in this world other than that. I hope you, uh, believe me, let me tell you, I get, I get beat down by myself, by the world, by the devil. And when I think of that, it's what gives me hope. I hope you're not looking to the politics to give you hope. And I hope you're not looking to economics to give you hope. And I hope you're not looking to yourself and your own abilities to give you hope. I hope you're looking to the Lord, the blessed hope. Him coming back. And if you're not saved here today, I hope you find out that He can be your Savior today. He can be. The Bible says that the gospel is this, that the, Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's what God did for you. He died for your sins. You're a sinner, so am I. If you're not saved here today, the only difference between you and me is that I took the gift. Now you're going to take it. I hope you consider that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose again the third day. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel by which we are saved, the Bible says. So today, I hope that if you don't know that, if, if you've been coming to church and you just do it out of duty or if you're just going to come to church and you know the facts but you've never received the gospel for yourself, it's like a gift, the Bible says. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You need to receive it. There's the gift on the table. Are you going to take it? And I hope you have. I hope you have. And if you're saved in here today, I got a message for you. And it's not my message. It's a message from the book. And I hope you understand this. Let's see here. Daniel and Paul and my wife have both had to sit through, all had to sit through this already, okay? And myself. Um, this, is a, this is a convicting message for me. I don't know how it's going to be for you guys. And uh, <clears throat> it's not... I'll be honest, I'm, not talk, I'm, not talk, I'm talking from my perspective now. As I go through this, as I studied it, and as I preach it, it's, diff, it's, it's a tough message for me because this is something that I got to work on every day, and it's something that the Lord convicts me about because there's, some, there's always some thing that I fall short in this, in this case. So it's convicting, and I hope, I, I said this in the first, first service, when we come here to the church, we come here to worship the Lord, absolutely, and we come here to fellowship with the believers, absolutely. But we come here to hear the Word of God preached so that it can change us. And I hope you consider what the Lord would do with this message and the words out of the book to change you. And like I said, it's not an easy message. If you come back tonight, I got a message that's a, a little more encouraging. <laughs> this should be encouraging, but this, this one's going to probably hit harder than tonight's message. Um, someone said that a preacher is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So whatever stage you're in... I hope that it applies to you, and I hope that you get a blessing out of it. In all seriousness, just let's pray that the Lord would have his will and his way in this service right now, and that uh, we can all get something out of this because of the Lord and not because of me. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you for that uh, gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this book that you've preserved for us, word perfect, Lord, and that we can study this thing out and understand what you'd have for us to know. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I teach and preach this book that I would not say anything contrary to your will or to your, uh, your truth, that you'd help me to convey this message um, clearly, and that, Lord, you'd help me to be honest and sincere in my desire to edify these people, and, Lord, only you can do that, and only your book and your Holy Spirit can do that. So please, we just pray that you'd move in and, and Lord, settle our hearts and our minds to focus on 
what we have here in the next few minutes, that you would teach us and help us and change us, Lord. And we, uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> excuse me. Turn to Acts chapter, tap, Acts chapter 11, excuse me. <clears throat> Acts chapter 11, and the title of this message, as is printed in the bulletin, is What is a Christian? And that is a, a kind of a basic point, if you might, you might think. Um, the world defines a Christian in a lot of different ways, and Christianity defines Christian, a Christian in a lot of different ways. Um, I, uh, off the internet... And uh, for what it's worth, this is from Wikipedia. Um, it defines a Christian as this. A Christian is a person who adheres to Christianity, which is an Abrahamic monotheistic religion, based on the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, as recorded in the canonical Gospels and the letters in the New Testament. Um, what I took out of that was basically what a person believes makes them a Christian. Okay. Um, and I, I mentioned already today, I've said, this is hard because I've never preached back-to-back like this, so I'm going to have a hard time feeling like I'm a, I'm a broken record. So bear with me, guys, that have been here already. Um, but um, unfortunately, I, I believe that when you talk to most people, when you say Christian, they think immediately of a certain denomination, and that is Roman Catholicism. They, you say Christian, and they think Roman Catholicism. I mentioned as I, I ministered to, uh, and, you know, trying to evangelize people, and uh, specifically these three groups, Jews, Muslims and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, all, when you say Christian, they immediately think of Roman Catholicism. First of all, that's a sad commentary on what we've been doing as Christians, okay? Um, number two, that's, a, that's, that's just part of the devil blinding the minds of people in this world to not understand what a Christian is. So, you know, the, the, the internet says that a Christian is, well, if you have this certain set of beliefs, that makes you a Christian, okay? Um, the world says it's this denomination or what, what denomination you belong to. This is a Christian denomination, Okay, I understand their, their thinking and their philosophy with that because it involves Jesus Christ. But what we're interested in is what does the Bible say is a Christian? And look, I already mentioned about what the gospel is and how you can be saved today. The Bible says you must be born again. Um, I would say this, and I put this out there. Um, I'm not asking if you're saved with this question. I believe you can be saved... And according to the Bible, not be a Christian. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that? We're going to look and see what the Bible says, okay? Um, you can be saved, but are you and am I a Christian? Um, it was very interesting to me, and the reason, one of the reasons why I developed this message was because I was like, well, let me see what the Bible says a Christian is. Um, and I found, kind of to my surprise, again, I want to take the poll. Who, just by raise of hands, who knows how many times the word Christian is mentioned in the Bible? Raise your hand if you know. There should be at least three other people in here, okay? <laughs> but okay, so who, who knows how many times it's mentioned? All right. It's not very often. As a matter of fact, it's only three times in the Bible. You would say, well, the Bible's a Christian book. Yeah, well, it's only mentioned three times. Only three times. And we're going to look at those three times, and we want to see what God says about what a Christian is, and let's see if that applies to our lives. And if it doesn't, let's change. Let's change the way the Bible has, has told us about it, okay? Acts chapter 11, in verse, starting in verse 22. Um, 
the, the, the disciples of Jesus Christ, the apostles, have gone. They've gone and preached the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea, and they're heading out to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And this city of Antioch that we're going to read about has, is north of Jerusalem, up in Syria, and it's, they're starting to move the gospel now away from Jerusalem and spread that gospel out like Christ told them to. And let's look at verse 22. <clears throat> it says, Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God and was glad, exhorted them all that, they, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This is the first mention of the word Christian in the Bible. It was not a self-adopted name. The people of Antioch looked at the disciples that were gathering together, assembling together with, with Paul and Barnabas, and uh, they looked at them and said, we're going to call them Christians. Uh, the word Christian, it, just, it comes from the word Christ and the, the suffix I-A-N. It just means uh, one belonging to or who is like, a Christ one. And uh, historically, this term was supposedly derogatory, like, ah, oh, that person's a little, a little Christ, he's like Christ. I don't know if that's true or not. The fact of the matter remains is the Bible records for us that they were called Christians. They didn't adopt the name themselves. They didn't assemble and say, let's call ourselves Christians. The people on the outside in Antioch saw the disciples and said, these people are little Christ. They're like Christ. And I want you to notice particularly at the end of the verse, it says the disciples were called Christians. So it was not self-adopted, but it was given to them who observed that these people were disciples of Christ. Now, that leads us to the question, and we're going to have to build this a little bit, what is a disciple of Christ? Um, and like I said before, in this morning's message, it's, it's, it's a whole message in itself. We could preach a whole message on what is a disciple of Christ. But very quickly, the Bible defines for us what a disciple does or is. And let's, let's look at these verses really quickly. You don't have to turn to these for the sake of time. I'm be moving a lot of scripture, but if, you'll, if you want to write them down just so you know where they are, we're going to look at a, uh, several things, what a disciple is. Considering that it was a disciple, the disciples were called Christians. So what did they observe? What did they see in these people, in these disciples? First of all, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said this, If any man come unto me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren... And sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You say, that's tough words. Yeah, it is. Um, and people have a problem with that word, hate. Hate not his father and mother. But we just learned, we just learned in Sunday school this morning, for those of you who were in Sunday school, we learned we leave the, let the Bible stand as it is. We don't correct the word. The Bible gives you the definition of what that means. In Matthew chapter 10, the same passage tells us that if any man love his father and mother and wife and children and himself more than me. So in the Bible, when Jesus is saying, if you hate not, he's saying, in relation to your love for me, your love for your children, your love for your spouse, your love for yourself is, is going to look like hate. That's the degree of love we have for the Lord. We must love the Lord more than these things, than these people. 
If any man come not unto me and hate not his father and his mother and wife and children, brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So number one, what is a disciple? A disciple loves the Lord more than anyone. That's what a disciple is. He loves the Lord more than any person. If you, the next verse in Luke says this, verse 27 of Luke 14, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to bear that cross. We know, of course, Jesus Christ bore that cross, the physical cross to Calvary. That was an instrument of his execution. That was how he was put to death. And if we're going to be a disciple of the Lord, we have to bear a cross. And I know a lot of people, you know, we use it. I, we get into these terms. Oh, you know, I got, I, I'm, I'm, I got this illness, and it's my cross to bear. I got this trouble, it's my cross to bear. And I'm not trying to put down any of that. But let me tell you something. A cross to bear is something that puts you to death, okay? Now, we're talking this, uh, the cross to bear is something that puts us to death in a spiritual sense. But the, the, the cross is something that we is used to, for our sacrifice to the Lord. We, we are sacrificing all of the things. Um, it's putting our flesh to death. It's putting our, our, our will to death, and we're giving that to God. Um, we're taking up that cross and willingly sacrificing those things for the Lord. So what is that? A disciple is one who takes up his cross. He's one that loves the Lord not only more than anyone, but more than himself, particularly, even though that was mentioned in the previous thing. He's, uh, their willingness to sacrifice for the Lord. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says this, so, likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. And this is in the context of the, the chapter goes and says, What man of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down and count the cost of whether he be able to finish it? This is a matter of, have, have, you, have you considered the cost of following Christ? That is, um, he says, Whosoever forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Not only do they love the Lord more than anyone, or more than themselves particularly, but they love the Lord more than anything. That's a hard thing for uh, Americans, because we got a lot of things. We do. We do. <laughs> and, and a disciple can't love the Lord more, uh, it has to muscle the Lord more than those things. Um, not wrong to have things. God's blessed this nation, given us abundance. But if the, you look what's going on now, those things, I think, are have superseded the Lord. What's he doing? He's going to start chipping him away until he's, he's in his rightful place. Um, so a disciple loves the Lord more than anything. John chapter 8, verse 31 says this, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So a disciple um, also loves, knows, and believes Christ's word. He loves the Lord more than anything. He loves the Lord more than any person. He loves the Lord more than himself, and he loves God's word. I have a hard time with people that say they're Christians and don't read this book. I'll just be honest with you. That's difficult for me. I don't know how you say you love the Lord and you don't want to know what he says. Like I said, this is not an easy message, guys, okay? Um, this is what a disciple is. He, he continues in God's word. He continues in God's word. He knows and believes that book. He loves his book. John chapter 13, verse 35 says this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. How do they know it? If ye have love one to another. Now, we're supposed to love the Lord more than anyone, more than ourselves. but a disciple loves the other brethren. He loves the people of God. 
And that's the other thing I don't understand. Someone who calls themselves a Christian never wants to get together with the people of God. What, what's going on there, man? What's going on there, man? All right? A disciple wants to, he loves the people of the Lord and wants to be around them. That's how they knew they were disciples of Christ. Notice that word known. We talked about a Christian as one who's called a Christian. They observed it. They knew it by what they saw. And a disciple is known by his love for the brethren, love for the people of God. John chapter 15, verse 8 says this, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples, by bearing much fruit for the Lord. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we, we learn about the gospel, about being saved, that it's not of works, lest any man should boast, and we're saved by grace through faith. But when we're saved, the Bible goes on to say, now that we're saved, for ye are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we didn't get saved by works, but when we are born again and made a new creature in Christ, now we have a purpose, and that is good works for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is supposed to bear fruit. There's supposed to be some results from that. And that's how we can be Christ's disciple if we're working for the Lord to bear fruit. All right? Two, two main jobs of a Christian, other than glorifying the Lord, two main jobs of a Christian are to win the lost and to edify the people of God. And that's the kind of fruit we're supposed to be bearing. And he says, so shall you be my disciples if you bear much fruit. So a disciple loves the Lord more than anyone. He loves the Lord more than himself. He loves the Lord more than any things. He loves the Lord's book. He loves the people of, God, of the Lord, and he bears much fruit. And listen to this. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says this. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be, if you want to be a perfect disciple, shall be as his master. A disciple is like his master. That's where the word Christian comes from. He's like Christ. So I want you to consider this. The people at Antioch saw the disciples who loved the Lord more than anything, who loved the people of God, who loved the Lord more than things, more than themselves, who loved the book, who were bearing fruit, who were like their master. They saw them and said, you know what those people are? They're Christians. We're going to call them Christians. And it was given to them. It wasn't the people adopting it on, on themselves. So the question I have for all of us is, what are we called by those that see us? Are we called, is the first thing that comes to their mind a Christian? Or do they identify us by other things? Do they identify us by our political affiliations? Do they identify us by our sports affiliations? Nothing wrong with that stuff. But when that's the thing out in the front, do they identify us by our occupation? You need an occupation. You're supposed to work, okay? But is that the first thing they know about you? Or, sadly, are, they, are we identified by our faults? I mentioned you know, earlier, like, is that guy identified? Oh, that's, there's the grouch. Uh, there's the lazy bum. There's the hypocrite. What do they call you? What do they call me? A Christian, number one, you might be saved, but are you a Christian? Are you called? Do people identify you? You don't have to tell them, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. And they say, yeah, sure. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to tell anybody you're a Christian. They'll know. Okay, you might be saved. Believe me, there's people that are saved that nobody knows. They're like God's secret agents, okay? But a Christian is known. 
And a Christian is called a Christian. So a Christian is one who can be identified by those who see them as a disciple of Christ. Number two, the second time it's mentioned is in Acts chapter 26. Turn there. Stand with me. We good? All right. All right. It's not getting any easier, folks, okay? <laughs> Hang on. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, Acts chapter 26, we are now at the point in Paul's life where he has been imprisoned because of preaching the, uh, the gospel in, in Jerusalem. He's been imprisoned for, I believe, at least two years. Is that correct? Yes, at least two years. He's been imprisoned. He is now being brought before uh, Festus and Agrippa, the king Agrippa, which is what the Lord said he would do from the very point he got saved to bear his name before kings. Excuse me. And he's, gonna, he's gone through his whole testimony. He's uh, uh, told uh, both the king and, and Festus there that how the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And let's pick it up in verse 20, 22. Um, and let's read from there to get the context of this next mention of the word Christian. Acts chapter 26, verse 22, it says this, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. Uh, you, you know what, uh, Paul says this to him, he says, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Look, this is interesting, I'll just, we have some time to go with this. Um, he says, uh, Festus accuses Paul of being mad. Do you know, Paul, he's not mad now, but look back at verse 11, when he talks about him persecuting the church. He says, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceeding mad against them. We, we use that word sometimes as angry. That's not what the word means. It means mad, like he's insane. The guy's crazy. He was so filled with rage against the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was mad against them, and he persecuted them unto strange cities. Paul, you know, Festus says, Paul, you're mad, this gospel. You're, you're, you've been do, doing too much learning. And Paul says, no, I'm not mad. I was mad. I was mad. The change that Christ made, I'm not mad now. I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. I'm in my right mind, and I got things straight now. I'm not, I used to be mad without Christ. Now I'm, I'm sober and in my right mind. That's what the Lord does for you. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Verse 25, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Look at this. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, I know some people like to construe that as like he's being mocking? I don't think so because of Paul's answer. Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, we're both almost and altogether such as I am. He says, that's what I'm trying to do, King Agrippa. I am trying to persuade you to be a Christian. And that is the second thing we can learn from the scriptures. What does a Christian do? What is a Christian? He persuades other people to be a Christian. This is what Paul did. He went around persuading people. Look back at Acts chapter 19, verse 8. <clears throat> Acts 
Acts chapter 19, verse 8, then he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is what you enter by, by the faith in Jesus Christ and being born again. That's what Paul's persuading people of, is the kingdom of God. Look at verse 26. The people in Ephesus get all riled up because their, their source of income from making little idols is being disrupted. In verse 26, this is what their testimony was. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. If you look at the very end of the book of Acts, there he is, Paul in Rome, still in captivity, the Jews coming to him, and he's persuading them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What does a Christian do? He persuades others to be Christian. He persuades them to be a Christian. I like to look at the definitions of, of words just so I have a, you know, a good understanding. The Bible defines the words for us, um, but you know, the, I, the Webster's Dictionary is not inspired. But just to get an understanding of it, um, it says this. What, what does persuading mean? To influence by argument, advice, entreaty, or expostulation. It's to draw or incline the will to a determination by presenting motives to the mind. It's to convince by argument or reasons offered or to convince by reasons suggested by reflection or deliberation or by evidence presented in any manner to the mind. That's what, that's what persuading is. And this is exactly the way God deals with us. When we, got, when we, when we were on a lost condition, the, the verse in first, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says this, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What does God do? You know what? People always accuse God of being a mean God. They just confuse the holiness of God with that, but God is not a mean God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we wouldn't perish. He had every right to let us perish. And yet, what does he do? Let's reason together. Hey, I sent you my son. He bore your sin, died, was buried, and rose again the third day. It's the remedy for sin that I've provided for you. Let's, just, let's reason together. Let me let's talk about this. Let me talk about how I can fix your problem. God reasons with us. And that's what we're supposed to be doing with other people, reasoning and persuading them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian does. Um, so the question to ourselves, what are we persuading people of? Are we persuading them of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we trying to explain to them their broken relationship with the Lord, with God, how they can be reconciled to God by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or is all our time spent persuading people of how our favorite sports figure is the best one of his kind, or how this sports team is supreme, or how this political leader is best? Uh, whatever social view, pick it, pick it, whatever it is. Anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we actually actively persuading people about? Because a Christian, according to Acts chapter 26, 28, persuades others to be Christian. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says this, and he said unto them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what are we preaching? There's a lot of things that we, get, we, we, we need to get involved in this world. That's fine. I understand. There's things that we need to be aware of. But what are we preaching? Are we preaching our political candidate? Are we preaching our economic viewpoint? Or are we preaching the gospel? 
What are we preaching? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What are we witnesses for? What are we witnessing of? Jesus Christ told his disciples to be a witness unto him. The Holy Spirit is a witness unto the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father testified of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we witnessing of? What are we witnessing of? It's not that you can't ever talk about these things, you know, economics, politics, whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, remember what we talked about with the love for the Lord? He that loved them more than me. What are we talking about more than the Lord? What are we witnessing about more for than the Lord? What are we preaching more than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because a Christian is occupied with persuading others to be a Christian. This is something that I do not have a keen enough awareness of. I don't know how you are. But those people you see walking by you, driving by the road, those are souls that are most likely on their way to hell. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear about it. Because when this life is over, you're going to look back and say, oh, I didn't have time. It was inconvenient. It may be uncomfortable. And there goes that soul into the lake of fire. Really? And I'm guilty of it too, guys. I'm, I, I let people go by me. When the Lord's given me opportunity to, to give them the gospel, there it goes. I don't know if I'll see that soul again when I stand for the Lord and that soul is judged. I don't know. But if I'm a Christian, I'm going to be active in persuading people about the Lord to be a Christian. That's what, that's what a Christian does. So a Christian, he's identified and called one because of, he's a disciple of Christ. A Christian is actively persuading people to be a Christian. You know, that could, I didn't even think about this, but that could kind of apply to, to the saved as well. You know, like I said, I, just because you're saved doesn't make you a Christian. Um, maybe there's somebody that you know, a friend that you're, you, you know, a family member, that's just, they're off doing their own, they're saved, but they're off doing their own thing. Maybe you could persuade them to say, hey, you know what? Let's, let, let's try to step it up and live for the Lord more like we should and be a Christian. That wasn't in my notes. That was free. <laughs> um, <clears throat> last of all, second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter four. <clears throat> Hang on. First Peter chapter four, verse twelve. The Bible says this Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 
There's a way that a Christian suffers. If any man suffer as a Christian. And let me tell you something. If you're going to be a Christian, and not just saved, but if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to suffer. And we'll, go, we'll talk about that in a second. But um, this, whole, this whole book, is the first Peter, is all about suffering. Fifteen times it's mentioned in these five short chapters. Suffering over and over and over again. And uh, I said before, you know, we don't know anything about that as Americans. American Christians don't know anything about suffering. Um, not like ages past, not like in other countries right now where they're actively hunting down and killing Christians, persecuting them, and all those things. But, um, you know, persecution from outside sources is definitely one of the ways the Christian suffers, and you might not get thrown in jail or be killed, but, you know, I understand if you're doing anything for the Lord, you might get some ridicule, you might get some reviling, you might get some passed up for a promotion at work or that. Um, and there's other ways that a Christian suffers, and it's by uh, enduring the temptation that he encounters. We're all going to encounter temptation. The question is, are we going to endure it and not give in? And that's a form of suffering that the Bible talks about in the book of James, chapter 1. But the fact of the matter is, don't be surprised, Christians suffer. Just listen to some of these verses. John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Jesus said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you're like Christ, and they hate Christ, they're going to hate you. We read it already in this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Don't think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is true. He said, this is not, don't be surprised if this stuff comes along. If you want to be a Christian, this is what comes along. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You see why this is not a popular message? You say, this is not how you build churches. No, it's not. But it's how you build Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2, in the same book, it says um, about afflictions, hereunto were ye called. God called us to some of this. Some of, some of the things in life include affliction, and God called us to that. There's a reason why he has us go through these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says a very similar thing. We are appointed thereunto. These are kind of afflictions. It's rough. I understand. I don't like preaching this. But we're trying to learn about what a Christian is. So how does a Christian handle suffering? The Bible says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, how do you suffer? How do I suffer? We'll take the remainder of our time and we're going to look into this. Bear with me. We're going to build it up step by step here. <clears throat> there are four things the way a Christian handles suffering. Number one, a Christian does not regard the reproach that comes with suffering. You say, what do you mean? Uh, look over at 2 Timothy, chapter 1. He doesn't regard it. In other words, it's, it's not of any big consequence to him. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, Paul is writing to the young preacher, Timothy, and he's giving him some instruction how to, how to handle things. And in verse 8, he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, 
He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. He says, Don't be ashamed of this. Just be a partaker of the afflictions. Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, amen, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. And we could go into why he's not ashamed there, but the point is that Paul says, I suffer some things, you're going to have some afflictions, don't be ashamed, don't, don't regard it, don't. Don't, don't, let it, don't let it move you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says the same thing about the gospel of Christ, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And consider this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 through 3 says this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, looking unto him for what? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. He says, what do you do? Consider Christ. What did Christ do? Just despise the shame. He didn't sit there and dwell on how bad people were treating him, and, you know, I don't deserve this. This is not right. This is unjust. He had a purpose to do, and we know what that purpose was. It was to go to the cross and pay for our sins. But what did he do? Just despise the shame. He's not ashamed of what he had to do. He endured it, and we're supposed to consider him. And when we suffer, not regard the reproach as anything to move us or to shake us. Just understand that's what it is. That's what's going to come to a Christian, and move on. Don't regard the reproach. That's one of the things ways a Christian handles suffering. Number two, a Christian handles suffering by remembering the reward that comes with it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, you might still be there, verse 12 says this, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And that is the denying of reigning. If we, if we do as Peter did, you know, got scared because he might suffer something and denied the Lord three times, uh, we're going to miss out on a reward. We're going to miss out on the reigning. But if we suffer, we will also reign with him. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Which, that, by the way, that crown, as I mentioned before, that crown is also tied to enduring temptation. That's part of suffering is enduring temptation, not giving in to the temptation, but enduring it and finding that way of escape that the Lord provides for us, as he said in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, so a crown. We get, the Lord says, I got, I got uh, a promise of reigning with me. I got a promise of a crown for you if you'll endure suffering, whether it's coming from externally or from internally temptation-wise. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says that the sufferings we deal with, there's no comparison to the kind of glory we receive at the end of this thing. If you're a child of God, this time of your life, whether you live 60, 70, 80, 100 years, 
What is that in light of eternity? And that is our problem. We're all fixated on this right now. And I understand. We got things to do. We got, we got responsibilities. And God's not telling you to ignore those things. But listen to this verse that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Paul was in jail for years. How is that a moment? Because he's looking at eternity. He's not looking at now. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Not only do we get to reign with Christ, not only do we get a crown, but we get to partake of some of that glory if we'll suffer with him. And the way we can, we can handle that is this, in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And if we could get this in our minds, and if I could get this in my mind, that we need to stop dwelling on everything that's going on down here. I'm not saying you don't, you got a job, you got a family, you got responsibilities. I'm not telling you to ignore that. I'm saying, where's our focus? What, what the, the thing right there, looking unto who? Jesus. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. We're looking out into eternity. Because when we hit that mark, man, when the Lord comes back and takes his church out of here, or when you die and you go to heaven, Man, you look back at that 70, 80, 100 years, whatever it is that you were allowed to live by the Lord, and you're going to say, it was, just, it was just a moment. It was just a moment. Our light of, it was a light affliction. I can't say that now. But Paul could say that now because of eternal focus. And we can if we'll get an eternal focus and not just look at things down here. So consider that. Um, remember the reward that is, that is coming to those who suffer. There's a crown waiting. There's reigning with the Lord waiting. There's glory that cannot be compared with the things that we suffer down here. Remember the reward. Don't regard the reproach. Number three, rest in our righteous God. That word righteous. God is righteous. Everything he does is right. And I'll tell you one thing. Sometimes the thing that has gotten me through when I didn't know what was going on and my head was upside down and didn't know what was going on in the world. I consoled myself with this fact. I don't know what the Lord's doing, but I know he's right. I, I don't get it, God. I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know you're right because God is righteous. I know you're right. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. We suffer, I'm just going to commit my soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Live or die, suffer or go home to be with him, I can commit my soul to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's faithful. He is faithful. Uh, that, that, that verse in uh, Lamentations 3, I think, about um, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God, what do you say in Hebrews chapter 13? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God's not going to bail when it's, when it's, you know, the worst possible time in your life. Kevin preached about this last uh, Sunday night. He was right there in the ship with them. And at the right time, he came in and said, peace be still, because he's faithful. He's, he's, he's with us, and he's a righteous God. He's going to do what's right. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And that's something we can learn about suffering is that 
it does those things for us. It perfects us, it establishes us, it strengthens us, and God will settle you after that thing. You know, uh, Philippians chapter 4, the Bible says this, Be careful for nothing. Don't be full of care for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the result? And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. I said before, the world can't understand that peace. But if you've ever gone to the Lord with a problem, sought his word out, prayed, you felt that peace just, God, just settle your heart. Situation didn't change, but God just put that peace on your heart. If you've never experienced that, you need to get close to the Lord because at some point in your life, you're going to have suffering and you're going to need that peace. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We're talking about resting in, a, in our righteous God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. <clears throat> you say, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. God became a man. That he might be merciful and faithful high priest in those things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That word succor is an old, older word that means to run to support, to relieve when in difficulty. And the reason Jesus Christ can do that is because he was a man just like you and I without the sin. Jesus Christ, it said in John chapter 4, he was wearied. He sat on Jacob's well. He was hungered. He suffered pain, both physical and emotional. They, call, they, they called him an illegitimate child in front of him. We be not born of fornication like you. He was rejected by his own people. He was despised and rejected of men. And he went through all that, endured it all, despising the shame, so that he could be a faithful high priest to us and say, I know exactly what that's like. I know what rejection is like. I know what pain is like. I know what sorrow is like. I know what it's like to have physical hindrances. He's a faithful high priest. He's a righteous God. Whatever he's doing is right. And we can rest in that if we believe that. So we're talking about what a Christian does with suffering. How does he handle it? He doesn't regard the reproach. He remembers the reward. He rests in his righteous God. And number four, he responds in the right way. How does a Christian respond? In other words, what's his outward manifestation of suffering? Well, we read in 1 Peter chapter 4 there, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but <clears throat> rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. See, that doesn't make any sense. Well, not to us. But do you believe this book? Just believe it. Rejoice. Take it with joy. Number two, take it patiently. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says this, For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. If you're doing what's wrong, if you're acting out, if you're, not, you know, if you're a bum at work, you're not doing what's right, you're being lazy, if you're treating your kids or spouse incorrectly and you're suffering for it, that's on you, okay? That's your fault. And you're taking it patiently. I'm suffering. Yeah, you're suffering because you were... 
a jerk. <laughs> All right, but the Bible says, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So suffering is no fun, but if we take it patiently, that's the right way to respond. First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6 says this. So that we ourselves glory in you. Paul says, we're glorying about you, Thessalonians, your church. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Do you see what that said there? It's righteous that you're going through suffering and God is going to recompense those who cause you the suffering because he's righteous. He's going he's gonna to balance out the scales, okay? He's not going to leave this thing unjust. Right now, we got to go through the bad side. When God writes everything, it will be right because he's a righteous God, and we need to take it patiently because of that. We need to take it with, uh, we need to respond with rejoicing. We need to respond with patience, and we need to respond without retaliation. And I think this is one of the most difficult things because as human beings, when someone does us wrong, we want to respond, and yet the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not our job to execute vengeance on those that do us wrong, especially when we're suffering for righteousness. <clears throat> First Peter 2, 21 through 23, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Well, here's the example. What did he do? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And I said this this morning when I preached this. You know, what did Christ say on the cross when he was nailed to the cross, unjustly, convicted by a bogus trial, nailed to a cross for our sin, not his? What did he say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I believe this. The Bible says about Christ, no man take, when, he, when Christ testified of himself, he says, no man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This gift have I received from my Father. Nobody took Christ's life. And so I believe that when he went to the cross, as he, he carried that cross up the hill and he arrived at Golgotha, I don't believe the soldiers wrestled him down and pinned his arms down. Do you know what I think he did? He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He said, excuse me, guys and laid his life down on that cross. I don't have Bible for that. I just believe, I, I think that probably something like that happened because I don't think they fought him to put him on the cross. He laid down his life. And that's our example. He left us an example. We don't revile when we're, when we're suffered. We understand they hated Christ, they're gonna hate us. We're living righteously, it's a wicked world. Of course we're gonna have opposition. And so we respond without retaliation. God's the one that retaliates. God's the one that judges when, it, when he wants to set all the records straight. So how does a Christian respond in the right way? He rejoices. <clears throat> he takes it patiently, and he responds without retaliation. And that identifies a Christian, how they handle suffering. A Christian, someone who suffers as a Christian, suffers by not regarding the reproach, by remembering the reward, by resting in their righteous God, and by responding the correct way. So what are we learning from all this? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who is identified as one because he's a disciple of Christ and has all those characteristics that we talked about. <clears throat> a Christian is someone who is active in persuading others to be a Christian. 
And a Christian is one who handles suffering the right way. And those things we just talked about. And it kind of, kind of brings all the points together. If I'm acting as a disciple of Christ, it's going to go against the world and they're going to, I'm going to get opposition. I'm going to suffer for that. If I'm trying to persuade other people of Christ, there's going to be opposition because it's going against the world's philosophies, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to suffer for that probably. Um, so if I'm a Christian and I'm living as a Christian, how do I handle that suffering? With joy, with patience, without retaliation. Is that the case? The question that I leave for myself again and for you is this. I hope you're saved today. Child of God, born again, on your way to heaven. But according to the Bible definition, let's ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? According to what the Bible says. And if not, um, let's deal with it. Let's ask the Lord, God, I, I, I'm lacking in this area. I, I fall short in this. I, I don't know what it is. You know what, you, 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 have, you have to deal with the Lord in your heart about what that is. I know this, this, this message, every time I've preached it, is just a rebuke to me. And it's something that I'm continuously trying to ask the Lord to help me work on. But um, I would just ask you, like I said, we come to church not just to enjoy and fellowship and worship, which we should, but we come to be changed. So if there's anything that needs to change today, um, let's ask ourselves that, and let's deal with the Lord about it, however you feel like you need to do that. Um, I'm going to ask Brother Eric to come up and... Uh, Lead us in an imitation song. It's going to be 153, I believe.